Civil War Weekly Podcast number eight for Monday, March 22nd, 2021. I'm your host, Sandy Clark. So I took a week off from the Nazis, the racists, the seditionists, and conservative political hackery and took a longer look around the entire world this week. I guess I'm enjoying that while I can. Donald Trump has his own social media plans, and I suspect we are about to see the birth of the most based and racist platform online since Stormfront. Trump has hinted that he'll be launching his own social media platform in a few weeks. So get in line, kids. You can find a link to that story and all the Russian-fed nonsense to follow at thenewcivilwarweekly.com, where I link to all these stories from the podcast post. That does not mean that the news quit happening this week, of course, and I have a few looks at the news in a week that saw yet another white American spree shooter. Of course, I warned you about the ill-tempered, brittle, white man-babies waiting to explode across the U.S. last week, right before one did. Well, this is it. I'm learning the value of a new phrase, well-worn after the Trump years. Shocked, but not surprised. We are becoming used to Republican Party failure. While it seems they should hit rock bottom at some point, I've quit counting on it. These people have no inner reserve of decency, Uh, waiting to make its rally from their brain to their fist. What they've got is owning the libs and avoiding blame when they get caught. Don't believe me? Listen to this sorry excuse for a press statement from Captain Jay Baker of the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office following the Atlanta spree shooter's assault on Asian massage parlors. Don't know. Um, and, and by the way, we're, I agree with the mayor. We're not going to do any victim shaming. We're not sure what his presence was there. Uh, and, we're, and the other people that were killed at the location, we're not going to say whether they were employees or whether they were there just by happenstance. So just don't want to go into that at this time. I do have a press release with their names that we will give you all uh, when this is over with. Um, so is that the only survivor? That is the only survivor. We had four killed and one survived. Thank you. Yeah, let me go into a little bit of detail. So the suspect did. Uh, take responsibility for the shootings. Um, He uh, said that early on once we began the interviews with him. Um, He claims that these, and as the chief said, this is still early, but he does claim that it was not racially motivated. He apparently has an issue, uh, what he considers a a, a sex conviction, and sees these locations as something that allows him to, to, um, to go to these places, and and it's a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. Um, like I said, it's still early on, but those those were comments that he made. Did he discuss any kind of religious? Um, when I when we sp- I spoke with investigators, they interviewed him this morning, and I uh, they got that impression that yes, he he understood um, the gravity of it, and he was pretty much fed up, and then kind of at the end of his rope, and um, and yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. Of course, it turned out Officer Baker had passed along anti-Asian COVID jokes himself. Of course, he would sympathize with the shooter. Every crooked cop and racist masked man could because 
Here's what they aren't telling you. Every single one of them, all of them, have imagined their own murder spree. Who do you think they imagine killing when they buy their guns? Who do you think they imagine killing when they buy their sixth gun? This bias and racism amongst cops is so obvious that the FBI's statement that they have found no evidence of a hate crime in the attack that left eight dead while targeting only Asian businesses has left Democrats like Reverend Warnock of Georgia stupefied. Former black agents also sent FBI Director Christopher Wray a list of adjustments to make in the FBI to assure it doesn't miss this current wave of domestic terrorists. We just can't trust the cops. It's like the old joke. Why do you never see a cop at a Klan rally? Because they can only wear one outfit at a time. That sickening lurch you feel is normal as the right has weaponized your decency to feel bad for that shooter's, quote, bad day, while the victims remain nameless in the press for days. Unlike recent black perpetrators, shooter Robert Aaron Long was taken alive and unmolested in his lily whiteness. The police didn't hold a press conference to feed you his rap sheet and vilify him. They didn't touch the perverted religion that made shooting those Asian grandmothers he sought for sex preferable to talking about his own problems. They focused on that poor, persecuted white boy. And, in related news, 26% of Republicans think white people face the most persecution in the United States in a poll released this week from Pew Research. Again, shocking, but not surprising. Trevor Noah was having none of it this week. This is truly horrifying. Eight people dead, six of them Asian women. And soon we'll learn all about them and who they were in life, but all we know right now is that they are dead and a 21-year-old white man with a gun killed them. And what's been sad about the story is not just the loss of life, but all of the auxiliary things that have been happening around the story. You know, like one of the first things that's been the most frustrating for me is seeing the shooters say, oh, it wasn't racism, it was sex addiction. First of all, you, man. You killed six Asian people. Specifically, you went there. If there's anyone who's racist, it's a mother who kills six Asian women. Your murders speak louder than your words. Six Asian women were killed. And you know, in a way, what makes it even more painful is that we saw it coming. We see these things happening. People have been warning. People in the Asian community have been tweeting. They've been saying, please help us. We're getting punched in the streets. We're getting slurs written on our doors. We're getting people coming up to us just saying, thanks for, thanks for COVID. Thanks for spoiling the world. Thanks. We've seen this happening. And while we're fighting for it, there are many people who've been like, oh, stop being so woke and so dramatic. Kung flu, come on. Ha 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 ha. It's just a joke. Yeah, yeah, it's a joke that has come at one of the most tense times in human history. You knew that something like this could happen. If you just apply your mind, you know that it's going to happen. This guy didn't go and kill these women by mistake. It wasn't, it's like he he knew what he was doing. And it's so frustrating to see this keep happening in America over and over again. America sees things coming. It knows something is gonna happen, but it does nothing to stop it. But then is all, all, all in on saying, oh, so tragic, oh, so true. Who could have predicted this tragedy? Anyone who was looking at it could. Why are people so invested in solving the symptoms instead of the cause? America does this time 
and time again. A country that wants to fight the symptoms and not the underlying conditions that cause those symptoms to take effect. Racism, misogyny, gun violence, mental illness. And honestly, this incident might have been all of those things combined because it doesn't have to be one thing on its own. America is a rich tapestry of mass shooting motivations. But whatever you do, please don't tell me that this thing had nothing to do with race. Even if the shooter says that, he thinks it had to do with his sex addiction. You can't disconnect this violence from the racial stereotypes that people attach to Asian women. This guy blamed a specific race of people for his problems and then murdered them because of it. If that's not racism, then the word has no meaning. And as if the violence, as if the, the, the trauma isn't enough, The part that breaks my brain, and I think so many people get affected by this as well because it feels like you're crazy when you're watching it, is where you see the police officer come out and almost trying to humanize the shooter more than the people who got shot. He was at the end of his rope. It it was a bad day for him. For him? Yo, yesterday was a bad day for him? No, yesterday was a bad day for the people who lost their lives. It's a bad day for, it's, it's, it's always interesting who police try and find the humanity in. Like I can guarantee you, if a black person or brown person went on a mass killing spree in a white neighborhood, not a f- would a police officer go on TV and say, well, he was kind of at the end of his rope and, and this is what he did. They barely have patience for black protesters who are not killing anybody. And the frustrating thing is that it did not have to happen. It does not have to happen from the top to the bottom, the politicians who are gonna cry now and say, oh, we're so sorry. Yeah, but when it's happening, when politicians are out there saying Kung flu and all of these, what are we doing then? We can all do something to try and fight against this. We can't stop every evil person. Please, I'm not saying that. No, someone's gonna be like, oh, there's always gonna be evil. Yeah, but you know what we can try and do is create an environment where we're not letting specific people be targeted because of the color of their skin. In this instance, find an anti-hate organization. Try and work with them. Reach out to people who need support. Donate your money, donate your time, whatever you can, but do something. And most importantly, let's try and pay attention so that it doesn't happen again. Because the truth is, we could see this coming. Yeah, shocking because violence always should be. But not unexpected, no, not at all. Not with this toxic brew of religion and misogyny and bad parenting from white people who have left their kids to be raised by the internet. Politically, we have started to come up with a similar realization about Republicans. They are not, in any way, just being hateful because of Trump. Trump isn't pushing hundreds of uh, bills disenfranchising election laws. Trump isn't on Fox News defending the Atlanta shooter. They're doing that all on their own. Trump isn't trying to erase the consequences of the January 6th attack. That's all on Republicans, like Missouri's Roy Blunt, who decided there was no need for a truth commission concerning the Capitol attack. It was just a failure of policing. Well, Chuck, as you know, the Rules Committee that I've chaired that now I'm the top Republican on and the Homeland Security Committee, we've held uh, hearings on this, two hearings so far. I'm for holding more of those. We're doing a lot of in-depth interviews. I'm not opposed to a commission, but uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi has never suggested after her first suggestion that it would be overwhelmingly controlled by one side that there'd be a, a bipartisan commission. I'd also think 
that this is a case where in terms of the security of the Capitol, whether the police board uh, is uh, functioning or not, not the Capitol Police, but the board that, in my opinion, got in the way of decisions that need to be made uh, that day, we know those facts, and I think the Congress itself could move forward and make uh, the changes that need to be made. It's unlikely that the uh, next thing we need to be worried about is going to be exactly like the last thing we needed to worry about. But clearly security from either uh, domestic terrorists or other or outside terrorists are, are things we should be concerned about. And I think the Congress itself has the capacity here to move forward. That doesn't mean I'm opposed to a commission, but frankly, I would believe that the commission would probably be a reason to wait and not do the things that we know we need to do right now. Again, shocking, but not unexpected. Blunt is retiring, by the way. He is no longer extreme enough for the voters of Missouri. Expect him to be replaced by someone more extreme, a new Josh Hawley, if you can imagine such a thing. But I've taken this week's break to ask who is pulling the strings on this extremism. A bombshell report, shocking but not surprising, dropped this week connecting Russian interference to the 2020 election and post-election environment. The Russia connection appears consistently and is willingly echoed on the right. For some, this just confirms Trump's position as a Russian asset, despite the fact that the Mueller probe specifically said it could not exonerate Trump and would, and would have had if they could, the right continues to believe that Russia is all a hoax. They believe this despite Trump's lies, uh, Trump's ties to both Russia and white nationalism. And well, they should, because while we have fretted about the Trump administration, it appears the rank-and-file GOP has taken up the cause of Russian disinformation directly. Even Ted Cruz came to Russia's aides last week in defense of their Nord Stream pipeline. And this isn't just going on here. There's an international rise of authoritarianism, anti-vax crusading, open protests, white nationalism, and it's all being promoted by Russia. Russians were early promoters of QAnon and have helped fuel its migration throughout Europe. It has already been noted that the GOP is turning itself into something resembling Putin's Russia party. A recent op-ed in the Washington Post argued that America faces two threats supported by the GOP, Russia and white na nationalism. What if those threats were effectively the same? Both leaders appeal to purity and both have fundamentalist religious beliefs. Russia studied U.S. society for decades. Putin appears to be deploying the Soviet-era plans against us. Russia, it, Russian interference online is a dark world of disinformation storms and information confrontation designed to rob the citizen of truth, according to the U.S. State Department. As Steve Bannon put it, the goal is to flood the zone with shit. Look at everything the Russians touched in 2020. Roger Stone stopped the steel rally, Trump's stolen election hoax, Hunter Biden's laptop and related story plants, anti-vaxxing conspiracies, and all of those open protests around the nation and the world. Also, there was the relentless hacking culminating in the massive solar winds hack Russia would rather us just forget. Russians hinted at an escalation after Joe Biden called Putin a killer and vowed to retaliate for the bounties Russia has placed on our troops and for Russian interference in the 2020 election. 
Those positions certainly place them at odds with good governance in the U.S. I contend we are at war with Russia and in denial of that fact. The fact the Russians are allying with criminals like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort in the United States should give everyone pause. Those two men had no problem representing torturers and dictators. It should come as no surprise that Russia tried to install them here. If you haven't read it, the book documenting Trump's place in the Russia international crime scene is Sarah Kinzer's Hiding in Plain Sight. Her podcast, Gaslit Nation, hosted with Andrea Chalupa, is must-listening for understanding the global rise in criminalized nationalist parties around the world. They will give you the scoop on the semi-porous sieve of Russian disinformation that is the Republican Party. As Andrea Chalupa said, the only successful trickle-down the Republicans have ever been able to achieve is the trickle-down of their hate. Another book to read, if you're thinking of joining the fight against fascism, is Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Study the way Russia is interfering with us. Read up on the history of anti-fascism. No matter who you are or where you are in the United States, it is time to stand up and be counted, not just for the United States, but for democracy around the world. And I don't want to leave you on a hopeless note, so let's wrap it up with 20 minutes 20 exquisite minutes from Reverend Warnock, newly elected U.S. Senator from Georgia. Listen to his maiden speech and then look for your place in democracy's fight. Remember, the election was won by those who stood up for democracy. You think votes don't matter? Without your votes in Georgia, there would have been nothing. No nationwide vaccine rollout, no relief bill, no Biden in Russia's face, and no Reverend Warnock in the well of the Senate. Mr. President, the Senator from Georgia. Mr. President, before I begin my formal remarks, I want to pause to condemn the hatred and violence that took eight precious lives last night in metropolitan Atlanta. I grieve with Georgians, with Americans, with people of love all across the world. This unspeakable violence visited largely upon the Asian community is one that causes all of us to recommit ourselves to the way of peace, an act of peace that prevents these kinds of tragedies from happening in the first place. We pray for these families. Mr. President, I rise here today as a proud American and as one of the newest members of the Senate in awe of the journey that has brought me to these hallowed halls. And with an abiding sense of reverence and gratitude for the faith and sacrifices of ancestors who paved the way, I am a proud son of the great state of Georgia, born and raised in Savannah coastal city known for its cobblestone streets and verdant town squares. Towering oak trees, centuries old and covered in gray Spanish moss, stretch from one side of the street to the other bend and beckon the lover of history and horticulture to this city by the sea. I was educated at Morehouse College, and I still serve in the pulpit of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, both in Atlanta the cradle of the civil rights movement. And so like those oak trees in Savannah, my roots go down deep 
and they stretch wide in the soil of Waycross, Georgia, and Burke County, and Scriven County. In a word, I am Georgia, a living example and embodiment of its history and its hope, of its pain and promise, the brutality and possibility. Mr. President, at the time of my birth, Georgia's two senators were Richard B. Russell and Herman E. Talmadge, both arch-segregationists and unabashed adversaries of the Civil Rights Movement. After the Supreme Court's landmark Brown versus Board ruling outlawing school segregation, Talmadge warned that blood will run in the streets of Atlanta. Senator Talmadge's father, Eugene Talmadge, former governor of our state, had famously declared, the South loves the Negro in his place, but his place is at the back door. When once asked how he and his supporters might keep black people away from the polls, he picked up a scrap of paper and wrote a single word on it, pistols. Yet there is something in the American covenant, in its charter documents, and its Jeffersonian ideals that bends toward freedom. And led by a preacher and a patriot named King, Americans of all races stood up. History vindicated the movement that sought to bring us closer to our ideals to lengthen and strengthen the cords of our democracy. And I now hold the seat, the Senate seat, where Herman E. Talmadge sat. And that's why I love America. <laughs> I love America because we always have a path to make it better, to build a more perfect union. It is a place where a kid like me who grew up in public housing, the first college graduate in my family, can now stand as a United States Senator. I had an older father. He was born in 1917. Serving in the Army during World War II, he was once asked to give up his seat to a young teenager while wearing his soldier's uniform. They said making the world safe for democracy. But he was never bitter. And by the time I came along, he had already seen the arc of change in our country. He maintained his faith in God and in his family and in the American promise, and he passed that faith on to his children. My mother grew up in Waycross, Georgia. You know where that is? It's way across Georgia. <laughs> and like a lot of black teenagers in the 1950s, she spent her summers picking somebody else's tobacco and somebody else's cotton. But because this is America, the 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls in January and picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. Ours is a land 
where possibility is born of democracy. A vote, a voice, a chance to help determine the direction of the country and one's own destiny within it. Possibility born of democracy. That's why this past November and January, my mom and other citizens of Georgia grabbed hold of that possibility and turned out in record numbers, five million in November, 4.4 million in January, far more than ever in our state's history. Turnout for a typical runoff doubled. And the people of Georgia sent their first African-American senator and first Jewish senator, my brother John Ossoff, to these hallowed halls. But then what happened? Some politicians did not approve of the choice made by the majority of voters in a hard-fought election in which each side got the chance to make its case to the voters. And rather than adjusting their agenda, rather than changing their message, they are busy trying to change the rules. We are witnessing right now a massive and unabashed assault on voting rights unlike anything we've ever seen since the Jim Crow era. This is Jim Crow in new clothes. Since the January election, some 250 voter suppression bills have been introduced by state legislatures all across the country, from Georgia to Arizona, from New Hampshire to Florida, using the big lie of voter fraud as a pretext for voter suppression. The same big lie that led to a violent insurrection on this very capital the day after my election. Within 24 hours, we elected Georgia's first African-American Jewish senator, and hours later, the Capitol was assaulted. We see in just a few precious hours the tension very much alive in the soul of America. And the question before all of us at every moment is, what will we do to push us in the right direction? And so politicians driven by that big lie aim to severely limit and in some cases eliminate automatic and same-day voter registration, mail-in and absentee voting, and early voting and weekend voting. They want to make it easier to purge voters from the voting roll altogether. And as a voting rights activist, I've seen up close just how draconian these measures can be. I hail from a state that purged 200,000 voters from the roll one Saturday night in the middle of the night. We know what's happening here. Some people don't want some people to vote. I was honored on a few occasions to stand with our hero and my parishioner, John Lewis. 
I was his pastor, but I'm clear he was my mentor. On more than one occasion, we boarded buses together after Sunday church services as part of our Souls to the Poles program, encouraging the Ebenezer Church family and communities of faith to participate in the democratic process. Now, just a few months after Congressman Lewis's death, there are those in the Georgia legislature, some who even dared to praise his name, that are now trying to get rid of Sunday souls to the polls, making it a crime for people who pray together to get on a bus together in order to vote together. I think that's wrong. Matter of fact, I think that a vote is a kind of prayer for the kind of world we desire for ourselves and for our children. And our prayers are stronger when we pray together. To be sure, we have seen these kinds of voter suppression tactics before. They are a part of a long and shameful history in Georgia and throughout our nation. But refusing to be denied, Georgia citizens and citizens across our country brave the heat and the cold and the rain, some standing in line for five hours, six hours, ten hours, just to exercise their constitutional right to vote. Young people, old people, sick people, working people, already underpaid, forced to lose wages to pay a kind of poll tax while standing in line to vote. And how do some politicians respond? Well, they're trying to make it a crime to give people water and a snack as they wait in lines that are obviously being made longer by their draconian actions. Think about that. Think about that. They are the ones making the lines longer through these draconian actions. And then they want to make it a crime to bring grandma some water while she's waiting in a line that they're making longer. Make no mistake. This is democracy in reverse. Rather than voters being able to pick the politicians, the politicians are trying to cherry pick their voters. I say this cannot stand. And so I rise, Mr. President, because that sacred and noble idea, one person, one vote, is being threatened right now. Politicians in my home state and all across America, in their craven lust for power, have launched a full-fledged assault on voting rights. They are focused on winning at any cost even the cost of the democracy itself. And I submit that it is the job of each citizen to stand up for the voting rights of every citizen. And it is the job of this body to do all that it can to defend the viability of our democracy. And that's why I am a 
proud co-sponsor of the For the People Act, which we introduced today. The For the People Act is a major step in the march toward our democratic ideals, making it easier, not harder, for eligible Americans to vote by instituting common sense pro-democracy reforms, like establishing national automatic voter registration for every eligible citizen and allowing all Americans to register to vote online and on election day, requiring states to offer at least two weeks of early voting, including weekends in federal elections, keeping souls to the polls programs alive, prohibiting states from restricting a person's ability to vote absentee or by mail, and preventing states from purging the voter rolls based solely on unreliable evidence like someone's voting history something we've seen in Georgia and other states in recent years. And it would end the dominance of big money in our politics and ensure our public servants are there serving the public. Amidst these voter suppression laws and tactics, including partisan and racial gerrymandering, and then a system awash in dark money and the dominance of corporatist interests and politicians who do their bidding, the voices of the American people have been increasingly drowned out and crowded out and squeezed out of their own democracy. We must pass for the people so that the people might have a voice. Your vote is your voice, and your voice is your human dignity. But not only that, we must pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. You know, voting rights used to be a bipartisan issue. The last time the voting rights bill was reauthorized was 2006. George W. Bush was president. And it passed this chamber in 98 to zero. But then in 2013, the Supreme Court rejected the successful formula for supervision and preclearance contained in the 1965 Voting Rights Act. They asked Congress to fix it. That was nearly eight years ago. And the American people are still waiting stripped of protections, voters in states with a long history of voter discrimination, and voters in many other states have been thrown to the winds. We Americans have noisy and spirited debates about many things, and we should. That's what it means to live in a free country. But access to the ballot ought to be nonpartisan. I submit that there should be 100 votes in this chamber or policies that will make it easier for Americans to make their voices heard in our democracy. Surely, there ought to be at least 60 in this chamber who believe, as I do, that the four most powerful words uttered in a democracy are the people have spoken. Therefore, we must ensure that all of the people can speak.
But if not, we must still pass voting rights. The right to vote is preservative of all other rights. It is not just another issue alongside other issues. It is foundational. It is a reason why any of us has the privilege of standing here in the first place. It is about the covenant we have with one another as an American people, e pluribus unum, out of many one. It above all else must be protected. And so let's be clear. I'm not here today to spiral into the procedural argument regarding whether the filibuster in general has merits or has outlived its usefulness. I'm here to say that this issue is bigger than the filibuster. I stand before you saying that this issue, access to voting and preempting politicians' efforts to restrict voting, is so fundamental to our democracy that it is too important to be held hostage by a Senate rule, especially one historically used to restrict expansion of voting rights. It is a contradiction to say we must protect minority rights in the Senate while refusing to protect minority rights in the society. Colleagues, no Senate rule should overrule the integrity of our democracy. And we must find a way to pass voting rights whether we get rid of the filibuster or not. And so as I close and Nobody believes a preacher when he says, as I close. <laughs> Let me say that I, as a man of faith, I believe that democracy is the political enactment of a spiritual idea. The sacred worth of all human beings. The notion that we all have within us a spark of the divine and a right to participate in the shaping of our destiny. Reinhold Niebuhr was right. Humanity's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but humanity's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. John Lewis understood that and was beaten on a bridge defending it. Amelia Boynton, like so many women not mentioned nearly enough, was gassed on that same bridge. A white woman named Viola Luiso was killed. Mega Evers was murdered in his own driveway. Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, two Jews and an African-American standing up for that sacred idea of democracy also paid the ultimate price. And we in this body would be stopped and stymied by partisan politics, short-term political gain, Senate procedure. I say let's get this done no matter what. I urge my colleagues to pass these two bills, strengthen and lengthen the cords of our democracy, secure our credibility as the premier voice for freedom-loving people and democratic movements all over the world, and win the future for all of our children. Mr. President, 
I yield the floor. That applies. Yeah, typically they don't do that. And that wraps up the new Civil War Weekly Podcast for March 22nd, 2021. I'm your host, Sandy Clark, and for links to all these stories, head over to the new Civil War Weekly.com. The enemy across the sea won't take our good advice. So now it's up to every man to make some sacrifice. What kind of an American are you? It's time to show what you intend to do. If we trample on glory, will you think that they